and welcome back to the Rough Trade Edit podcast. This week, Manic Street preachers James Dean Bradfield on venturing out into the solo sphere once again with a new album exploring the life of Chilean musician and activist Victor Hara. I caught up with James to discuss what led him to the project, personal expectation, exploration and influence and what's in store for fans next year. So new album, Even in Exile, is of course a Rough Trade Edit pick and is out right now available in store and online. Um, Stick around for my chat with James coming up a little later on. But ahead of that, let's get into some new edit picks for the last couple of weeks. So out last Friday, Norfolk-born, now South Londoner Oscar Jerome's highly anticipated debut album, Breathe Deep, was unleashed. It is a staple of the capital's burgeoning jazz scene and Oscar has collaborated with pretty much all of his jazz contemporaries, think Shabaka Hutchings, Moses Boyd and Yusuf Days, um, including influences of funk, soul and hip-hop. Oscar boasts a broad musicality, no better displayed than on Breeze Deep. So check out this track, Give Back What You Stole From Me. Next up, and Willie J. Healy and new album Twin Heavy. My God, I have spun this album until it's like melted on my turntable. Let me tell you, um, it's so bloody good. All the 70s vibes on this one through bright, fizzy, fuzzy pop jams sunny stompers and some really really sweet songs that are equally nostalgic and super fresh i command you to listen to it if you haven't caught it already it is a complete highlight of 2020 for me totally making my top 10 of this year so yeah here's one from the record check out songs for joanna are you an island a little lonely sounds like joanna God, I love that so, so much. I really, really do. And also on Yala Records, who are brilliant also. Please, please check it out. Next up, and Whitney released Candid, which follows their acclaimed 2019 album, Forever Turned Around. Um, Candid is a loving tribute to songs that have been formative and lasting to the entire band. It is a 10-song collection boasting covers of artists like Kalela, David Byrne, John Denver, among many, many others. And the album marks a really bold step outside the band's comfort zone, uh, the covers challenging them to stretch into new musical directions. The result is a really, really fantastic one. And here's my favourite on the album. This is Whitney's take on John Denver's Take Me Home Country Roads, which also features the equally wonderful Waxahatchee.
finally looking ahead to this Friday and you will see the incredible talent that is Nubia Garcia drop into our edit. The multi-award winning saxophonist and composer releases her debut album, Source. Um, the album explores getting grounded within yourself so that you can be present with others. It is a really, really exciting, really rich and really deeply inspired body of work. We also have an exclusive live session from Nubia being streamed on Zoom as part of our digital events programme. Album tickets for that are on sale now. I will leave the link in the show notes for you. We're really, really excited about that one. I think it's happening on the 27th of August. Um, so here's a little taste of the album for you. This one is actually, I believe, also being performed in the live session. So if you love this, go check out that event. This is Nubia Garcia and Pace. So those were my Rough Trade edit highlights for this week. Next up is James Dean Bradfield, who is chatting to me about his brand new solo record, Even in Exile. It is out right now, a Rough Trade edit album, and it is going down a real, real storm. I dug a little deeper into the subject matter and how making music outside of Mannix can still be a daunting if fulfilling experience for James. Really enjoyed this one. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and I will catch you very, very soon. So James Dean Bradfield, a really warm welcome to the Rough Trade Edit podcast. Hello, how are you doing? Um, your new solo album, Even in Exile, is a eulogy to a life cut short. It's a collection of songs that loosely trace the story of the life and death of Chilean poet, singer, activist, Victor Chiara, inspired by a selection of poems written by Patrick Jones. Um, it was back at the start of 2019, I believe, that Patrick gave the poems to you. At that point, were you on the hunt for material for a new solo project? Well, it was even before that, to be honest. Uh, I think it was uh, late summer of 2018 uh, uh, when I actually managed to get the words off Patrick. And basically what, what had happened was is that um, I see Patrick quite a lot when I'm, when I'm up in the valleys. I live in Cardiff and, and I go up to the valleys to see my father and I'm popping back down through the valleys. Sometimes I pop in to see Pat. And um, he always shows me a book that he's reading or a book of poems that he's reading or mm. or kind of like, oh, he just showed me a project that he's working on, a play he's working on because he's had so many performed plays now, et cetera. Or he'll just, you know, just like show me something, a blast from the past, you know. It's just like, you know, popping in on a Sunday evening for a cup of tea kind of vibe. And um, one week I, I popped in there and he was uh, showing me lots of prose and poems and and he was almost almost like a little one-man play as well. Um, that was all about Victor Hara, which was kind of taken aback at, really, um, because I suppose my first question to him was, how are you going to publish this, this prose, this poetry, this little play, you know, what are you trying to do with this? And it kind of became clear that he was just using it as a writing exercise. He was kind of exercising that 
muscle or that emotional muscle. And he wasn't in the best place because his, his uh, mother had passed away and his father was ill, um, which is the same for obviously Nicky Wire in the band because Nicky Wire is his brother. Mm. And after a while, I just, um, I suppose the opportunist in me saw all these amazing words in, in front of me that I was reading and, and uh, he made it clear that if they weren't for publishing them, so I made it my mission to try and convince him to do something with them. And, and that I was the best avenue <laughs> to see if I could create some music around them. Um, and he agreed. And, and it worked straight away. You know, the, the song started flowing. So it was some kind of lovely serendipity. And um, I suppose it kind of felt more so like serendipity or beautiful fate because I'd been hearing the name Victor Hara in songs from the age of 15. Uh, the first time I'd heard you the name Victor Hara was in a Clash song called Washington Bullets. Sorry, when I was 16. Um, and, you know, and all my life I'd been hearing his name uh, in a U2 song, in a Clash song, in a Working Week song. Um, you know, I, people like Robert Wyatt had done Victor Hara covers. Bruce Springsteen had covered him. Calexico had, had written a song about him. So it, it just felt like this name that wouldn't go away. And I knew about the story and I knew about the man. And I knew about the triumph and the tragedy. Um, I just didn't know so much about his music. So that was the biggest reveal for me in finding more about Victor Hara, you know? Yeah. You also, um, I think you've mentioned that you were really inspired by the idea that if a life means anything, it kind of continues beyond death. I think the evidence of the recognition, influence and legacy Hara's life has left certainly backs up that trail of thought. And obviously it's an incredible story. So was that also like a real driver towards turning the poems into an album? Yeah, I mean, kind of, you often get confronted by your own quotes. And by that quote, you know, if, if a life means anything, it means that it, that kind of, it continues after death. That can be on very on the, on, on the smaller kind of fa- family levels, you know. Yeah. I'm not pulling any heartstrings, but, you know, I think about my mother all the time. Um, me and my father talk about my, my mother uh, and her sisters talk about her. Um, and that's the same thing. You know, my mother really endures for me. And whether it be Philip Hall, our ex-manager as well, we talk about him all the time. And of course, Richie. Um, it doesn't have to be somebody who's an icon uh, or somebody, you know, f- from the past that's that's been covered in glory through the media, etc. But yes, Victor Hara is an idea um, a reality, a kind of like a, a singer that just doesn't go away. Uh, even this earlier this year and last year, there were at least 5,000 people in Plaza Italia in, uh, in Santiago, in Chile, uh, singing one of his songs, which is remarkable, really, because uh, I, I, I can't think of many places in Britain where I've seen quite a young crowd, you know, a, a crowd aging from 15 to 30, singing songs that were written in the late 60s or early 70s by, by somebody that's dead now. You know, there, there are not many places in Britain where you'll find such quite young people singing such old songs. Mm. And that's really quite striking um, that Victor Hara kind of still strikes a chord in people that are really quite young and old and all the way in between. You know, he really strikes a chord through Chilean society, through every demographic. Um, and there are still people like Clexico that obviously wrote a song about him not so long ago. Mm. Um, Jeremy Corbyn was uh, kind of quoted him the night before the general election, obviously <laughs> not such a great memory. Um, <laughs> kind of, 
And now, obviously, you know, there's 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 me that that's talking about him. That's written a kind of a kind of small concept album about him. Um, he does endure. He does go across continents, timelines, hemispheres, language barriers. He travels across all those things. Yeah. Like, there is a huge range of musical influences explored in your record. You've mentioned a few just then. Just, I can't even begin to imagine how you found Starting Point, because obviously there's, there's so many songs that have already been written. Clearly, you're already a fan of so many related musical touch points. But did you also kind of do wider research um, around kind of the topic when you were building the album? Um, well, I, first of all, I, I suppose I, I, I had it in my mind that I wanted it. I wanted it to be clear that this is an outsider's view of Victor Hara's life and the people in his life and yeah. that that era of Chilean history. Um, it's a let's face it, you know, it's a Northern European's view, an outsider's view of all those things. I didn't want to go down the route of trying to include Chilean uh, kind of instruments or styles on musicians. You know, I didn't want to go Paul Simon on it, basically, um, kind of thing. And I didn't, and I, I suppose you, you're faintly aware of all those accusations that get flung around of cultural appropriation. Um, I don't think that was in my head, but it's kind of, it's there in your subconscious. But that's why I wanted to make it clear. It, it was an outsider's view. Um, just as most people since uh, his death has been an outsider's view of his life, the culture he lived in, and the people around him. Uh, so the main thing that, that drove, uh, the main influence that drove my writing for the record, I suppose, um, was Victor's music itself. Uh, when you hear the phrase protest singer, I suppose that summons up an image of something which is front and square in front of you metaphorically, um, that opposes you if you don't agree with it. Um, that is something which is dogmatic, something that kind of hectors you, which I've been accused of being as a singer many, many a time kind of thing, the hectoring tone of James Dean Bradfield. Um, but that's what people think when they think of protest singing. Um, Victor Hara is not like that. Um, his songs pretty much shine rather than shout. Um, there's always a spirit of reconciliation in his tone, sometimes in the lyrics. In fact, a lot in the lyrics. His songs are really inclusive. Um, his music is more, in, more akin to the softer side of Tim Buckley sometimes, albeit with a obviously Chilean and, and South American influence. You know, his, his music floats to you a lot of the time. So that really influenced me. Um, he is not that kind of front square on dogmatic, oppositional kind of protest singer. He has something very much more beautiful in his delivery. And dare I say it's something much more feminine because one of his biggest music influences was somebody called Violetta Parra. Um, and he learned to play uh, guitar and sing on his mother's guitar. And I think that really comes through in the, in the delivery of his songs. So I didn't really do any research. I just really immersed myself in Victor Hara's music because I was just really enjoying it. That was my end. That was my gateway into it all, really. Yeah, I was going to. Sorry for my long answers. Sorry. Oh no, no, it's amazing. Um, I was going to move on and and dis discuss the fact that you've also recorded a three-part podcast series, yeah. which further explores the cultural impact of Hara. Um, you speak to people including Charlie Birchill, Joey Burns, Emma Thompson, and of course co-writer Patrick Jones. Um, when you pitched the series or kind of spoke to them about the fact that you wanted to, to record this podcast, did it open your eyes even further 
to Hara's influence at all. I obviously I've seen um, several, you know, kind of fans or have been touched by his by his work and his influence. I think kind of he was just really humbling. Uh when I kind of started interviewing people for the podcast, it's the wide range of people that were kind of inspired by him um, in different ways was kind of amazing. So I talked to Christopher Bruce, who was the kind of the main creator and the main author of um, the ballet Ghost Dances, uh, because Christopher Bruce was the head of the Rambe, a Rambe dance, dance company. Now, Ghost Dances has been performed all around the world. Um, it's, a, it's a ballet which has barely been out, out of repertoire for more than two years at a time. It's a very famous piece. Um, I interviewed him, and, and what was remarkable was is that um, his gateway into being inspired um, to write that ballet about the disappeared in South America was Joan Hara's book, His Widow, His Wife, um, who was a dancer. She was a ballet dancer herself. That was his gateway into Victor Hara, um, so Joan Hara was a massive influence on that ballet getting created. Uh, I talked to somebody called Holly Nia, who was a, a singer, an activist, an actress, uh, more famous for her output in the 60s and the 70s. Um, her gateway into Victor Hara was uh, Victor's widow, Joan Hara, as well. Um, so I became really aware that they were a double act. Uh, that's a really trite way of putting it, but... Victor Hara and Joan Hara, his, his wife, you know, they really did so much together. They really believed in their cause. And after Victor's death, after his murder, Joan Hara um, went back to Chile. You know, she had the bravery to go back and, and reclaim the place that she had called home after leaving, after leaving Britain. So that was quite humbling uh, to find out that it was Joan Hara's book, An Unfinished Song, that was such an inspiration for so many people. And then I talked to people like Joey Burns from... Uh, Calexico, uh, and I'd actually got that record with that song on Victor Hara's hands, and um, and he was very inspiring because he played in Chile a lot. He'd uh, kind of met lots of people that had uh, known Victor Hara. <clears throat> um, he had met some of the members of uh, Inte Ilamani, which is like a Chilean uh, kind of like folk music um, group, um, and he was very very inspired by Victor Hara's bravery. He talked about it so much more eloquently. Than, than I have um, in any of these interviews. Um, so just going from Joey Burns, you know, who is an, part of an amazing rhythm section. Um, then you've got a Christopher Bruce, who is a, who's a guy that, let's face it, he's, he works for a ballet, you know, he, he's a ballet choreographer. And then I, you know, I talk to people like Kevin Brennan, who's a, an, M, an elected MP, Labour MP in Cardiff, who's actually inspired to become an MP partly by Victor Hara. That's a massive wide cross-section of people, a musician yeah. from America, a guy from Middle England, and, and you know, and an MP from Cardiff. That's, that's, that's amazing, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think you mentioned in the first episode that you yourself tried to cover some of Hara's songs, but you said that it felt like you were sort of trespassing. Yeah, um, it's really strange because his songs mostly do have a, a socially observant narrative um, and some are just downright ideological or just, you know, very political. And so it's hard to sing those songs, but I had an idea of, of, of which songs I wanted to sing. I wanted to try and sing a song called Luchin, which is a beautiful, beautiful song. Or I wanted to try and sing a song called Manifesto. And um, <clears throat> I tried. 
to sing both songs in the studio without even recording them. And our engineer, Loz, I could see him wincing a bit. He was like, oh, this isn't working. And, it, and, I, and I felt the same. It was almost a relief for somebody else to, to say that because uh, the words kind of felt hollow uh, coming from me, mm. which I'm fine with. Sometimes things just don't work. Uh, and then you watch, you know, uh, footage of somebody like Bruce Springsteen uh, singing Manifesto in Santiago, doing a cover of it, yeah. and, uh, and it works. <laughs> it's like, so sometimes, you know, your voice just doesn't fit uh, just doesn't doesn't fit the song. It's as simple as that. But the words are so loaded, um, and obviously Victor Hara's narrative is so loaded with, like I said, triumph and utter tragedy. That if you don't get every part of the delivery right, then you just can't do it. Um, so that's why I didn't do it. There was something there just telling me not to do it. And I'm not even being mystical. It just just the nuts and bolts of me singing those songs didn't work. So I. Uh, so I, I solved the problem by uh, covering one of his instrumentals. <laughs> which is wonderful. Um, I think somebody mentions in the podcast, actually, which touches on what you were describing earlier about how kind of activists aren't angry. And you've said that the songs are very beautiful. Um, do you think, although I'm sure, obviously, when you began re- recording the album and when you sort of came up with the idea for it, none of what's going on in the world at the moment um, had kind of happened yet or kind of risen to the level that it has now. Do you think um, people who listen to the record will kind of learn from or be inspired by Victor's story and kind of what connotations it might have with the, the kind of revolution that's going on in the world at the moment? Um, I think I'd like to think it's a bit more nuanced than that, to be honest. Um, I, I wouldn't, prescribe Victor Hara as, as a kind of, as a panacea to all the ills in the world, because I think it's a bit more complicated than that, because I think there are a lot of cautionary tales about what happened to Victor Hara, and of course, what happened with the coup in Chile in 1973, when Pinochet yeah. took over. Uh, there are lots of things you can pick out from it, um, or as, as, as this generation says, takeaways from it. Um, (laughs) Again, see, it sounds so wrong when I say that. Um, But I think, you know, Ayande's government who uh, were overthrown by the Pinochet coup and uh, and Salvatore Ayande was, uh, he was helped to get elected by people like Victor Hara. You know, Victor Hara sang on the political stump for him up and down the country. And he was the first, I think he was the first Marxist president um, to be elect, democratically elected in South America. Um, that coalition that kind of put the, uh, the popular unity government into government in Chile, the coalition that put them there started falling apart. No, it started falling apart, some people say, because of... Kissinger and Nixon and CIA, etc. all those well-traveled conspiracies. But also it started falling apart because the left started fighting each other within the popular unity coalition. And I see that happening a lot in Britain too. Uh, kind of people in Britain that you would broadly say used to be on the same side are now fighting with each other all the time. And yeah. sometimes I think I, I, the Tories must wake up and go, oh, we're okay for another month in the news cycle because they're still fighting each other. But I think that's one of the first messages. Um, kind of, I suppose, in politics, you need a, 
you need a big tent <laughs> to get everybody under, you know, that old cliche, but you do. Um, and it's like the Monty Python sketch, you know, are you part of the popular Judean people's front? Fuck off, I am. I'm part of the front for the Judean people. You know, that old joke. <laughs> I, I, part of the reason, I see that happening a lot in Britain. Um, and it, it definitely happened to a certain degree uh, in Chile. And of course, there was a, they took advantage of that um, because the, 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 the right wing insurrection um, in Chile was strong anyway. So um, the, the, the climate for that coup became a perfect storm, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. It's not just because the right wing wanted it, it's because the left became fractured too. So I think, you know, there's, there's, there's two very strong messages there uh, for everybody. Um, if, if, you, if you're determined to fight with each other, then you, kind of, you, you will definitely be in opposition for much longer than you want to be. Yeah. I guess just really it's just, if, particularly for people who maybe aren't aware of him and his history, and it's just a, a, a way to kind of, a, a starting point, if you will, to kind of explore who he was and what happened and the kind of context of what you're trying yeah. to get. I mean, the striking thing is, is that I said earlier, you know, the conciliatory tone, the literal, the, the literal conciliatory tone of his voice mm. still didn't stop him from getting brutally murdered. You know, now we're talking about, you know, the, the stuff which is awful, um, which is, which still shocks. And you can, you can either let that inspire you or you can just let yourself recall from it in horror. Um, and I kind of, I suppose, after the initial horror of, of, of learning how Victor Hara died in that stadium and the symbolic action of damaging his hands to the point of him never being able to use them again before murdering him, you know, um, so he couldn't play guitar. All those things are just, they're beyond anything you can analyze. It's just a brutality which just shocks you to your core. Yeah. But... If any of the reports are true, you know, he, he's, he died with grace and he, and, he, and he died still singing songs that mm. he believed in. Yeah. Um, and I actually, there is something there to take away from that. Um, I'm not trying to make a movie out of it. I'm not trying to create a, like, um, a misty, myth, mythological, uh, sepia-tainted tableau for people to take away from this. But I think you've, I think you've got to try and understand that at the heart of something like Victor Hara, who was a human being, he had an ego. But, you know, he didn't go down swinging or fighting. He just actually died um, still acting with the grace that he lived, with which he lived. Mm. Uh, so I think there is an important message there. And it kind of worries me that everything becomes so polarised. That's what happens in Chile. Everything becomes, becomes so polarised in politics in general, even in the West, it seems, especially in Britain. Something horrible always comes in to that vacuum in the centre ground and parks its stanks there. You know, something always takes advantage in the, in the middle ground that's left, evacuated by the polarised left and right. Um, and so, yeah, I think there is a, a, there's a, there's a broad over message about those times and perhaps what we need to be careful about. But I think the main thing I take from Victor Hara is that music that actually um, has a narrative which is not about, you know, boy meets girl or kind of like, or boy meets boy or whatever, or kind of, you know, uh, about something frivolous. Songs that have that kind of narrative which talk about society or talks about people, mm -hmm. um, uh, talks about, you know, talk, 
songs that talk about, you know, uh, sorry, songs that talk about injustice of some side, some kind don't have to be doggerel. They don't have to be grey. They yeah. can actually be as beautiful as Song to the Siren by Tim Buckley, you know, as Manifesto by Victor Hara Proofs. Um, that kind of music, you know, that has a message doesn't have to be sub-thumping, I suppose. Mm. There's definitely a growing appetite, it feels, at the moment for kind of protest music, usually probably in more the kind of outrage form. But I agree, like, I think it's it can also be presented in a different way and that's the yeah, yeah, just to give you the choice, you know? I mean, it's interesting, really. Um, uh, I, I think a lot of uh, that set in Chile, uh, from Violeta Parra to Inter Ilimani to Victor Hara, um, were kind of like, I suppose, the Pete Seeger tribe. They didn't really, they mistrusted rock and roll quite a lot. Um, and they didn't really like the term protest singer. They preferred the term revolutionary song because they thought protest singer just summed up the, the frivolousness of of um, what rock and roll was and, and rock and roll co-opting people like Bob Dylan eventually and just turning them into something whose message was so so much less vital once they weren't purely folk. So it's, it's kind of interesting, you know, kind of those that generation um, in Chile I, I, I don't think I would have wanted to have gotten this album reviewed by them. <laughs> they, <laughs> kind of thing, you know. I kind of um, there's a there's a there's a kind of psychedelic heavy rock band from that era called Aquateria, um, where I've got an album by a Chilean rock band, and I would like to have seen them and Victor Hara on the same stage. That would have been a that would have been a bit of a chuckle. Yeah. Um. So this is your second solo album. Your first came back in two thousand and six. I guess even though you've had so much experience, is it daunting in any way putting this new album out? Yeah, it's always daunting not being out there with Nick and Sean. Um, let's face it, I am an institutionalised Manic Street preacher. It's the band I've been in since I was 15 years old. You know, I still recall the moment Nick gave me the first lyric um, that we uh, that we decided to try when we decided decided to try and write a song together. I remember the steps in the school that he gave them to me. Um, it's a long time to yeah. be in a band with other people, um, and so when I step outside of it, it always takes a long time to get used to the fact that I'm not going to be having their input. I'm not going to be asking their opinion. I'm not going to be reacting to what they write or what they play. It's all on me. So it. I never really get used to it. I just kind of blank it out. Um, so kind of, it is scary going out there. And it's, it's not the best time thing in the world. Let's face it, uh, you know, we had lockdown and I had the, the album ready and finished. Mm. And now the album is out. You know, people have been through a pretty bad time. Uh, people are feeling very existential, to say the least, about everything in life. And I'm putting out a record about... Uh, a singer-songwriter that got murdered in the stadium in 1973. Not really the feel-good message people are probably wanting to hear right now. Um, but obviously, I'm not moaning about that. But um, yeah, there's lots of reasons to feel nervous, less people going into shops, um, not really wanting to uh, bring people down too much after, the, what, what, after what they've been through. Um, and just the nervousness of being outside the band that I'm, I've, been in, I've been in all my grown-up life. I think though where you say 
about putting out the record at this time. I've had so many conversations with people over the last few months about how music has been a real kind of sense of comfort, particularly when you're at home and you're stuck indoors and it's like rediscovery or it's discovering something new and something to really just kind of distract yourself from, I suppose. Yeah, I've had a strange experience of listening to music at the moment because I definitely have an urge to listen to music all the time. And I do listen to lots of old stuff. But what I expect from new music, I'm not quite sure. So I've been, you know, for the last uh, two weeks, I think, I've been bouncing between uh, Black Ears by Salt and um, um, Inner Voice by Kelly Lee Owens. When I've wanted to escape, I've been listening to Kelly Lee Owens. Uh, when I've been wanting to engage, I've been listening to Salt. Yeah. And, but I've been bouncing between them both. Um, but when I've listened to, when I've decided I've had enough, I turn it off. Mm. It's really strange. It's quite, it's quite strange that um, I'm feeling quite schizophrenic about what I want from music. Um, the books I'm reading, I'm definitely looking for some escape. Um, yeah. With music, I'm looking for utter dreamscape, which Kelly Lee Owens gave me to a certain degree. Um, but then again, I'm looking for a motor that's driven by something outside of the band and outside of the ego, which salt gives me. Um, but there's nothing in between at the moment, which is quite strange. Okay, interesting. I suppose because you've released a podcast alongside your album, that's like another dimension for people to dip into, which I think is a really nice part of it and really kind of speaks for your kind of fascination with the material that you're dealing with. I think the main, uh, the main reason I want to do the podcast was that I looked at the list of all the things that Vigar had inspired, you know. Um, uh, so, the list is so big. Mm. And I thought, do you know what? I've got to actually make clear here that I'm just one in a long line of people that have been inspired, that have been inspired by him down the decades. I wanted to make clear that I'm just the next in the chain. I wanted to make, and I wanted to show that, you know, he'd, like he'd inspired chapters in books like Dorian Linsky's uh, book about uh, protest songs, uh, 33, uh, uh, 33 and the Third, um, the, so- the History of Revolution Songs and, and Protest Songs. You know, he, he inspired a, a, a big chapter in that book. Um, you know, ballets. Um, Emma Thompson had written a, a script, you know, a potential script about his life, which had never got made. So many people have written songs about him. So many people have covered his songs. I just thought, I've just got to make clear that it's just had a, it's it's a case of the torch being handed on to somebody else, basically. Well, congratulations on the record. You can tell it's a real labour of love. I could sit here all afternoon and talk about it because the material is so so rich. Um, we wish you all the very best with it. Um, and I think we'll be seeing you again very soon, come twenty twenty one, with a new Manix record. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. I mean, we're six songs in now, um, and the titles are rocking, um, and that's always the good sign. Uh, For me, I just love great titles. That's the thing that always gets my imagination going, whether it's as a fan, um, if I see a good title, or, you know, a new band is releasing a record called so-and-so-and-so, I just go, ooh, I like that. that, That's always my in. And and the titles that Nick had given me from his lyrics are, are just bang on at the moment and um, they really are and he's i think everybody's worrying about what kind of record they're going to put out post lockdown yeah. etc 
And at the moment, he's, he seems to have avoided writing about it, which I'm really happy about. I, I, it doesn't, I don't really want to do a COVID, a post-COVID album. Yeah. Um, so I kind of, he somehow, in his genius way, has managed to avoid that. So we're six songs in and I'm, I'm back in the studio to do some more demos tomorrow. Wow. Well, we can't wait. James, thank you so much for chatting to me today. Um, and subscriptions help to support what we do so if you like what you hear then please rate us on itunes